Hello and welcome to this episode of EastCast. My name is Antonia and I'm joined by Lucia. Hello. And Michelle. Hello. And today we'll talk about media freedom and digital media in Belarus. For that, we have invited Dr. Alexander Herasimenko of Oxford University. He is an expert in Belarus and his research focuses on technologies and how they can increase civic engagement in authoritarian regimes. Dr. Razumenko, it's lovely to have you here. Welcome. Yeah, yeah. Hi, hi. Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks for inviting. I think it's uh, an important topic. Thank you for being here. We think so, too. For a bit of context, uh, Belarus is led by an authoritarian government and Alexander Lukashenko has been president there for the last 27 years. And there's this famous quote where he calls himself the last remaining dictator of Europe. In this oppressive regime, media freedom ranks very low and according to researchers without borders, it is Europe's most dangerous country for media personnel. And now in this particular setting, the last presidential election in 2020 sparked huge and unprecedented waves of protest that caught the attention of media outlets worldwide. I want to ask you, why did the people in Belarus protest on such a big scope then? And what was the turning point of the election in 2020? In fact, there were quite many exceptional events that happened uh, in, in 2020 and 21 in, in this country. People uh, were always unhappy with, uh, with the political system of Belarus, I believe. And it seems like they were always uh, complaining a bit, but and protesting as well as trying to change something using other means, but it was never, uh, they never had this major success. Belarus uh, always, uh, since it's, uh, since it became independent in 91, it always been divided, it's always been divided society. And it seems like people would never agree what path to take. And that's why sort of dictatorship found a way in Belarus, because if people can't agree, they start sort of arguing, fighting, polarization. Uh, it seems like for many, the dictatorship was the best solution. Sort of, it kind of stabilizes it and solves uh, temporarily all the troubles, but it never ends them. And the troubles reemerged, say, last year again, two years ago. Mm. And um, yeah. in parallel, people grew up very unhappy about how governments have been handling problems. Uh, it was a pandemic time and government been handling pandemic very strangely they uh, didn't adopt any basically any measures that most of the countries around the world adopted if you remember uh, the russian football championship was the only basically football championship running in europe during the pandemic the first wave of uh, pandemic mm -hmm. you know many other cases people were afraid and they were unsatisfied with handling it was one of the key reasons that their grievances grew up or in 2020 then it was the election period and election period in dictatorships in authoritarian countries is always a chance for politically sort of independent minds to speak up, to find a microphone. And many uh, people found the microphone and attracted a lot of attention and, and channeled those grievances I was talking about, long-term grievances, dissatisfaction with this polarization, division in society, with dictatorship in general, with economy, and as well as with handling of pandemic, they channeled the emotions yeah, we read in one of your papers that there were protests in 2011, but they just weren't so successful. So, if I understand correctly, the pandemic was a really important turning point for the people. Yeah, I think there are many, many reasons COVID pandemic and the handling of the pandemic by the government was one of the key reasons that fresh 
that provide fresh emotions, produce fresh emotions that mm. uh, sort of people wanted to express to the government and didn't find a channel because media system is polarized by the state media that are very much controlled by the government. It's hugely controlled. It's hard to explain to what extent the state media, uh, television, radio stations, newspapers being controlled by the government, never criticizing the central government officials, president never doing it. And obviously there were no w way for people to express uh, satisfaction. So streets became sort of one of the key channels for that. You've just said that there are no free traditional media in Belarus. So people had to rely on new media to get independent information, right? What did they use? First of all, YouTube uh, and later Telegram. So social media platforms, uh, they're very kind of in, in a good way. Certainly they professionally, they develop skills, the activists develop skills over years and they combine those skills uh, with the ability to find larger, larger audiences, to speak the audiences and finally they re-emerged as crucial actors uh, in uh, during the election period. Yeah. And uh, do you think that Telegram was used by also, not only from the activists, but also has been used also from the government and politician to try to uh, influence people to end their thoughts or maybe repress uh, activism on these new platforms? So initially it was mostly YouTube that became the key source of political information for many people who later joined the protest. And then when protest emerged, uh, uh, it was Telegram that helped to coordinate people or people use coordinate coordination affordances of Telegram, potential of Telegram to bring people together. Over mm -hmm. time, they, uh, people became very much interested in mobilizing and what's going on in general in the country. One of the reasons for that, that internet was shut, essentially access to the internet became impossible and new sites disappeared. So people couldn't learn what was happening. And that's why Telegram became the key source of information because Telegram was very much harder to censor. It has this kind of interesting architecture that prevents hard censorship when it's totally off. So there were ways to access information about protests and the key way was Telegram. And over a few first few weeks of the protest, uh, people re really used it to, to huge success to, to dominate the streets, dominate the country. Protests spread around up to 100 places. It's a pretty small country. I think all, all the possibly all towns been covered in many smaller like village style uh, settlements. A huge numbers of places been covered by the protest. And uh, but over time, government loans. They, met, they realized they cannot censor it, Telegram, so they learned how they tr try to use it to track people, trace key activists, spread mm -hmm. a bit of misinformation there and use it to their advantage. So the government shut down the internet because they wanted to censor and silence critical voices. But when Telegram was so important, why didn't they just shut that down too? Yeah, they tried. They tried to shut down the Telegram. The internet went off in the first few days of the protest movement. However, they couldn't. The Telegram system, the whole architecture, prevented them from totally switching it off. Similar thing had prevented Russian government to switch off Telegram a few years before those events. They also tried and they failed. 
Mm -hmm. you, you said that Telegram also became a source of information. How did that impact journalists and their ways of working? Could Telegram restore media freedom? In terms of their way of reporting, they turned to Telegram indeed, and they used it um, actually because, uh, unfortunately, many of the independent, prominent independent news organizations lost um, lost their newsrooms in Belarus. Their web addresses became unavailable without a VPN, without this advanced uh, technology to access internet, and many people don't know how to use them. It's normal. Uh, then uh, they turned to Telegram. They started just, they became Telegram channels. <laughs> they became Telegram organizations in some way. And unfortunately, it's not good, I think, for journalism. Obviously, it's kind of downgrading itself. And then at some moment, uh, police started raiding, uh, going around newsrooms, attacking them, crushing them. So people had to leave. And I think, unfortunately, there are almost no journalists who are more or less prominent, known, who are left inside the country. It's very, very sad. It means that basically all news that coming from Belarus, they're coming either from official sources or from some kind of, you know, turned many degrees around the cameras of uh, onlookers who just passing by. In other words, not professional, uh, not professional evidence. And it means that feeds suffer and audiences, first of all, suffer. Mm, so the situation for the independent journalists became quite critical since then, but Telegram kind of became a space for them to at least partially continue reporting, right? So what about the Belarusian citizens? Can Telegram be seen as a tool for democratization for them? It's always a question with new media uh, emerging. People always look for sort of uh, sort of ultimate tool for uh, bringing end to censorship, to excessive control of the state or actually Obviously, it, so Belarus context is so different from context of Europe. As I mentioned, it's it's even then there was so little criticism of the government in state media. State media really dominated through television, radio, dominated information space, public sphere. It didn't exist. The public sphere didn't exist in Belarus because there was no other side. There was always one side. It's hard to imagine, but it exists. These countries exist. There are quite many of them, in fact. And this Belarus is one of the case. And obviously, it's when Telegram became that powerful tool, when basically most of the households been using it to check news, political news, which important. Obviously, it brought huge wave wave of politicization. It pol it makes people thinking about politics and not thinking in a way that government wanted. Not like dictatorship wanted them to think about politics, but how essentially giving them all chance to think and think critically and choose the side they wanted. They gave them additional information. And obviously in that regard, user telegram was, was a good thing. And it's still a good thing, I think. It's been used in many other countries that experience similar troubles. But what happens, obviously, it's not the ultimate solution because there is no ultimate solution to that problem because technology alone cannot solve, unfortunately. As you said, Telegram is used also in other countries, but like, for example, in Germany, we have the sensation that um, Telegram is most used by people that are right-wing right -wing activists, so it's most uh, a instrument for gator people that are kind of extremists. So in Belarus, it's 
totally different. Yeah, what well, is the difference between sort of Western countries, countries with media freedom, and countries where media freedom is very much restricted? Uh, and obviously, Telegram being built around the ideology of maximum freedom of speech and minimum content moderation. That's the ideology, idea, ideal of its founders and owners. Uh, but it, it resulted in twofold situation. When it comes to places like Iran, Azerbaijan, Russia, uh, China, part, Myanmar, Singapore, uh, places where government thinks that freedom of expression is not a value, in that places, uh, Telegram became a tool for people to establish sort of what we call public sphere, establish dialogue, deliberation, discussion about politics without censorship. In countries where uh, there are other channels for people to express themselves, like Germany, obviously with much free, freer media system, obviously it's, Telegram is not most popular. Telegram isn't needed for that purpose. There are many other established channels mm -mm. for discussion. And, but because it's, it has these affordances, as I mentioned, of maximum media freedom, minimum content moderation, it attracted other type of people. Not very sometimes nice people, all types of uh, kind of extreme activists, radical activists, people who've been removed from other platforms, and they abused abused those affordances of Telegram settings potential in their own interests, unfortunately, and those interests might be actually damaging for the ideal and ideas that say people in Belarus fighting for. Yes. That's the problem with sort of internet, right? Internet can be used differently by different people. And it seems like there is this kind of bit of conflict now, yeah? There are people who are concerned with helping people in countries like Belarus and people who are concerned, first of all, about preserving values of more established democracies. And Telegram is available in both places. What to do with that? I have no idea. So in Belarus, because... Because the Telegram channels created a public sphere that was critical of the government, the government in turn labeled them as extremists to legitimize their violent oppression. Did that change anything? So did the people get scared and left the channels? Certainly, it changed the dynamics. It's indeed been labeled. They could label it in any other way. They could label it uh, terrorist. They could label it, I don't know, uh, extraterrestrial <laughs> channels. I don't know, just outlaw doesn't matter how they label it. It's about just language. The issue is, of course, they just hated those channels. They tried to put people away and people became very afraid. Indeed, I think the audiences of key protest channel fallen five times, uh, four times, so it's certainly a huge fall. But at the same time, people still use those. It's, it's impressive that, of course, not everyone should be following politics every day, you know? Not everyone should be an activist. It's impossible. And in your opinion, what are the possibilities left for the activists? Like, uh, is there any alternative to Telegram or? Yeah, well, Telegram is still being used actively. Uh, there are also other alternatives. And it's, it's, it's not really about, I think, a tool, but rather an alternative of how to avoid repression overall. Because I think there are uh, several thousands of people in, in prisons in this country on political charges. So people have been put in prison because, well, 
they express something on Telegram or somewhere else on YouTube, or they just participated in the protest. It's a very peaceful man. It was very, very peaceful protest movement. Extremely peaceful, especially for the numbers. Millions of people on the street, and you have basically zero accidents uh, that come in from ordinary people. Then later on, violence happened, but the all violence been almost all violence, not everything, but a lot of violence, most of the violence been uh, initiated, unfortunately, by the police because at some moment government couldn't stand those people. They couldn't sort of uh, be on the same street with them. They hated it and they started trying to subdue it. They, they won in that regard. So obviously what people are now doing, they're just trying to survive, uh, preserve themselves, as many actually other dissidents in, in the history of 20th century Europe, in many other circumstances. Yes, there are many stories of totalitarian, authoritarian states existing in, in Europe, 20th century, unfortunately. And uh, as we don't know from history, later on, they all collapsed. And those people who managed to survive, preserve themselves, they... They reemerged uh, on the rubble of the collapse of the authoritarian state and helped to rebuild it, helped to make a better society. I think this is the hope of those people in Belarus as well. So, would you say that the digital activism movement was successful in the end? In Belarus, it was not successful, but it was successful uh, partly temporarily. Uh, so, in that way, both Telegram and all other tools people used help them to mobilize initially. And in that way, they were successful. They mobilized up to perhaps 1 million people. Can you imagine? It's more, more than 10% of adults. Well, we don't know how many exactly. Okay, at least 10% they mobilized. It's huge. 10% is, is the size of uh, revolution in Iran in 1979, when many, many people went to the streets. It's, it's bigger than in Ukraine 2014. It's bigger than in many other cases. So what happened? It's certainly bigger than, I don't know, any process that took in Europe, in Western Europe, over the last decades, perhaps. We haven't seen some, so many people uh, really often who came on the streets for political reasons, especially in dangerous places, right? So they were successful in mobilizing those numbers, but they were not successful as activists in pushing further, pushing for regime change, or at least some kind of reforms, democratic reforms. And there are many other reasons. Sometimes they're just beyond Their influence. Um, as you said, there are also other countries that uh, are following a similar path uh, as Belarus. And right now we are witnessing like a similar situation in Kazakhstan, where people like um, they started as well with peaceful uh, protests and riots, but now are becoming now they already repressed the, the protests, but uh, it become all the sudden violence because they also say that uh, maybe there were some protesters from the government so that they try to uh, mess up with also people to get uh, a reason to repress with violence the protests. So what do you think will be the outcome for this country and what are the chances uh, to, to see that we can see this country in a different way? Yeah, well, I think... Uh, it, Curiously, yeah, Kazakhstan also used to be part of Soviet Union, right? Uh, and it's sort of uh, also not far away from Russia. But it's a bit different story. I, I, protests look similar at the very beginning, and then uh, it turned very different. Uh, though it's also similar authoritarian regime, the nature of society, the nature of the regime, in fact, is different. Kazakhstan had never had a sort of 
much experience of democracy. Belarus didn't have much, but it had at least like four years of democracy. It's, it's not much, but it's something, right? Uh, Belarus already had uh, some other sort of uh, events. Uh, as I mentioned, its key problem is this polarization around a path to take a culture. In Kazakhstan, there are many different, there are many different problems. They are big, different, and this society is, is very sort of, yet based a bit partly on how uh, things look like in the 19th century, I mean, before that, they are a bit, uh, they very much of this idea of the tribe is still quite important. So which tribe takes power? The society is divided into three different sort of sectors, tribes or whatever you call it, and they're still quite significantly important in terms of politics. And it's a bit different story really from sort of European countries in that regard, unfortunately. And that perhaps partly explains violence because sort of inter inter sort of sectoral violence is something that's quite easy to spark. It's sort of one uh, sort of semi-tribe attacking another one. It's a bit different story really from sort of civic kind of conflict that uh, goes in Belarus. And it means that I think I'm afraid, yeah, with Kazakhstan it's something that Things are not looking bright, unfortunately, and right now for the people. Obviously, there are also quite a lot of sort of uh, ways and people who think about things civically, sort of in sort of European manner, and think of their their state as European state or European model state, which is good. But the problem is again there is Russia that doesn't like any democracy around itself. Looks like, and also there is huge uh, sort of oil reserves that make some people rich and some people poor. There are so many troubles and so many problems inside society. So in, in that way, no technology is going to help until you have that level of problems in society. You cannot easily resolve yourself. It takes time, unfortunately. So how do you see the future for Belarus? Yeah, well, Belarus, I think the key question is whether expansion of Russia continues. We know that now many people discuss whether there is a possibility that uh, Russia might, might invade Ukraine under some pretext of some peacekeeping operation. If it happens, uh, there might be war, and uh, it might be that Russia is going to win the war, take some part of Ukraine, if not all. And then the question is, who's next? And many people see like Belarus is the sort of uh, key target for many people, unfortunately, in sort of these imperial circles of Russian government. It's, you, can't be, you can't believe that logic. This logic is very hard to understand why they want that. Unfortunately, that some of them want it, and they want some kind of uh, enlargement of Russia. So the question is whether Belarus remains independent, and if it remains independent, if it preserves its independence, whatever it looks like, it preserves its names, passport, language. I think things going to look like better, uh, better eventually. I think uh, the history suggests that all European dictatorship disappeared uh, eventually, all repression. To, uh, later or soon uh, sort of been finished and it means that uh, there, is, uh, there is some bright light in the end of Belarusian history tunnel when it arrives, no one knows but if it remains in the tunnel if it's not shut, totally completely by Russia, things is going to be alright I would say that these are some very promising last words for this podcast. So, Dr. Harazimenka, thank you so much for your insights and for being here today with us. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Great question. And thanks. Thanks for your time and interest. 
This was Eastcast. Thank you for tuning in. You can find this episode and more on all the main podcast platforms. Bye.